For today's episode, we sat down for a second time with Matthias J. Barker, a licensed mental health counselor who gained a lot of popularity on TikTok and Instagram when he started posting videos about mental health. As a counselor, he became increasingly curious about healing from trauma. In this episode, Matthias helps us understand the possible connections between our own pain and childhood experiences and the unwanted behaviors we're engaging in. He also shares practical tools for engaging in and moving past those behaviors, including how to identify the root cause of what we're avoiding, the benefits of opening up to someone trusted, like a therapist, and the encouragement that real healing is possible. We hope you enjoy this episode of Consider Before Consuming. Matthias, it's so good to have you back for our listeners who have probably seen you on TikTok or social media. Uh, Matthias is a licensed mental health counselor. And um, the last time you spoke with Fight the New Drug was actually your last day um, in a group practice, I believe. So can you tell us a little bit about what your practice and work has looked like since then? Well, okay. So things kind of took off on TikTok and Instagram um, pretty rapidly, right around kind of the beginning of the pandemic. And so I think that was a time that everyone was really looking for maybe support in their mental health and people were struggling in all sorts of different ways. And so, um, yeah, I just so happened to be posting TikToks and like these little videos about all sorts of different topics in mental health. So part of that was right place, right time. And then um, what resulted was a lot of people maybe jumping on my wait list. I'm a therapist. And so I, I see people in a clinical practice. And so the group practice, the the owner of the group practice came to me and said, hey, we need to take you off of our website. We can't make outgoing calls. And that was pretty funny. They're like, every time we put the phone down, the phone then rings and we pick it up and it's someone trying to get on your wait list. It's just a pretty odd thing to hear because I was kind of the new guy at the practice at the time and had the small office under the stairs. And that was, uh, so yeah, all at once, I kind of went from, yeah, just pretty pretty new in, in the field and uh, still kind of cutting my teeth into kind of having a larger voice in the world. And I've been trying to do well with that and and honor that trust that people have entrusted. So part of that was getting into my own practice. So that's funny that it was the last day. Now it's been creating a lot of workshops, actually collaborating with a lot of different experts. That's probably been the part that's been most exciting for me is getting to talk to some heroes, make some really cool resources for people that then in the meantime, get to kind of get trained and mentored by some of these people I read in textbooks. So trying to make the most of a good opportunity and trying to make sure that people get the best possible help that they can. Awesome. Well, congratulations. Um, You do make amazing resources. We're excited for our audience who maybe didn't catch your last episode with us to learn about you and to be able to follow you and learn from your resources as well. But also I'm excited to, um, to share in this conversation, you do a lot of work in trauma recovery, particularly childhood trauma. And so I want to talk a little bit about that today as it relates to our mission at Fight the New Drug. But can you tell us what first got you interested in that area of treatment? You know, when I was in my internship for my master's program in counseling, um, I decided to uh, work within a department that specialized in working with kids who had experienced sexual abuse and specifically um, maladaptive sexual behavior, which is when kids sexually aggress other kids. And so that was often my work was with foster kids and kids who had experienced both really terrible things, but also had aggressed others in ways that created a lot of pain. And so it was a really um, heavy uh, way to enter the field, perhaps is, is one way to describe it. But I learned a lot really rapidly 
just about trauma, about um, even just sexuality and how we relate to our own sexuality, how we relate to pleasure, how we relate to our own pain and even the intersection between um, our own experience of erotic pleasure or connection and our past trauma and pain. Like all of those topics, all of those, I don't know, I, I imagine like a big Venn diagram, how all those things can overlap. That was my sole focus for that first chunk of my career. And then to be totally honest with you, it was rather overwhelming um, to start in and, you know, with that demographic. And I I often found that, you know, when we're kind of at that level of severity where kids are in foster care, they're in group homes because they can't get placed, you know, in other, I don't know, in other locations because they have a history of, you know, being sexually violent. Um, it's really hard for them to find other placements. And so they're kind of collected in these group homes with boys who also have those backgrounds. And so then you're, you're kind of, it's, it's a really vulnerable place to be in. Um, it's a very dangerous place to be in. And so I, you know, there's this term called, you know, vicarious trauma. And that's when, because of the work that you do and the things that you're experiencing, even though you're trying to help, you experience trauma yourself. And it's very common with like paramedics, with firemen, uh, with doctors, where just because of the nature of their job, they're just around a lot of suffering and a lot of things going wrong all the time. And I felt really similarly. And I don't know if I would have described it that way at the time, but looking back on it, I can name that now that I was really overwhelmed. I wasn't sleeping well. Um, I was starting to kind of get into some bad habits just to kind of cope with, I don't know, uh, feeling really emotionally overwhelmed by it. So I had a mentor who was really insightful and could see that I was just trying to keep my head above water and said, you know, Matthias, it'd probably be good if you did this 20% of the time, not 100% of the time to start out. And, you know, and I was like, well, those kids, they need me, you know, that this, I can't just, you know, stop. And he's like, yeah, they need you for 50 years though. And you, like, it's no good to yeah. anybody if you do this full time for two years and you burn out and you have a crisis, yeah. you know, and it, you're actually going to end up helping more kids if you take your foot off the gas a little bit and make sure that you're healthy. And I found that really persuasive. And so I took, and this is around the time, I think that, um, you know, we talked last a few years ago. And it was, I took kind of a, I don't know, a pivot in my career. And I started working with domestic violence um, and working with couples who were trying to, I don't know, work through intimacy and connection and relationship, but had a lot of, uh, I don't know, sometimes addiction, sometimes trauma histories. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things that can precipitate that, but found that kind of diversifying the types of circumstances that I was trying to help, that I was trying to provide therapy in just allowed me to kind of get a breath, um, just personally, just as a human, just myself to not um, be in such heavy spaces all the time. And then I found, um, well, just kind of through the mix of doing some individual counseling, some couples counseling, some uh, continuing to work with kids, that there was a lot of common threads just around trauma in particular. And the activity of healing from trauma was something that I became increasingly curious about. And so I reached out to um, a scholar in the field of trauma. His name is Dr. Frank Anderson. And he's some, he's, um, well, he wrote the book on something called internal family systems. He wasn't the founder of the model, but he co-wrote the manual with the founder, uh, Richard Schwartz and reached out for some mentorship and just a little bit of coaching. And that turned into a, a really great friendship where he really took me under his wing and showed me the ropes, so to speak on how to use that model to help heal trauma. That was really meaningful. So 
that's been the past several years has been apprenticing under one of the best. He's a Harvard trained psychiatrist. He just, you know, has all the pedigrees you could want, I guess. But, um, you know, my public work, like we just said, took off around the pandemic and I, I started making videos, short form videos, like 60 seconds or something on what it's like to heal from trauma and what that means. And, and those really seem to be resonating with people. And so then uh, after, you know, several millions of followers and all that kind of stuff, I started speaking in different places and started traveling and started making workshops and I've just been so, you know, fortunate and blessed to, to have that kind of a platform. But like I was saying earlier, really wanting to meet that with a lot of substance and, and that, that means me being healthy. That means me having mentorship and coaching to make sure that I'm bringing high quality stuff to people. And and engaging in conversations like this where it's not always obvious that trauma perhaps might be contributing to the knot that we're trying to untangle in something like dependence on pornography um, to whatever degree. I think what I've found in my clinical practice when I've worked with people and then honestly even just in my own life was just so, uh, it was so uh, ambiguous, the connection of my own pain and my own childhood experiences and and struggling with this substance, with this drug. And um, yeah, I want to let people know about that and give people recourse, something to do, something to respond with. Um, it's It might be you know clear for some people listening. It's like, okay, yeah, I had some stuff happen as a kid and maybe some inappropriate experiences. Okay, that might be fueling some of the pornography stuff, fine. But then it's not obvious like what you do you know, with that information. Or for others, yeah. it's, it's not obvious that something more disconnected could actually be connected to a porn dependence. And so that could be, I don't know, emotional neglect from your mom or dad or a near-death experience or um, uh, bullying and loneliness and isolation, uh, not feeling like you belong, struggling with your sexuality. I mean, all those things, you know, the way that, and internal family systems, they they think through it the way that I've come to think through it is when we have a habit that we can't kick and we wish we could act differently, but for some reason, we just keep doing the thing we don't want to be doing over and over and over. That's typically because of one of two things. It's we're trying to soothe some sort of emotional pain or we're trying to manage some sort of complex emotion or series of thoughts that we'd rather not be thinking in other words, the thing itself is a fix. The thing that we're doing is trying to fix something that we genuinely don't know how to solve. I think you just touched on so many important things. First, obviously, the breadth of your work is so relevant to the work that we do. Something really important you said is a good reminder for our listeners as well, especially those who are in this space as activists, that it's important to take care of yourself if you're doing this kind of work so that you have something to give. Um, so I appreciate you mentioning that as well. And then also just um, really digging in, you talked and you you were just speaking about this a little bit, but you had mentioned, you know, there are a lot of coping mechanisms rooted in trauma and you kind of just started to to talk about this. But I would like to dig in a little bit more of into the coping mechanism of addiction and really understanding what is it that we're trying to to soothe with that addiction? Why why do people with kind of all of these different you know types of trauma that you did just mention find themselves in addiction well addiction is well it's it's a couple of things you know i there's a bunch of maybe technical psychological words to describe all these things but just in to just to make it practical and <laughs> normal everyday language we get into these 
modes where we depend on something to try to fix a problem. That could be an emotional problem. That could be boredom. That could be uh, some sort of trauma that I'm repressing that I'm not thinking about. It could be um, loneliness, feeling purposeless, not feeling like I have a lot of meaning in my life. You know, I think a lot of people would be surprised. They, they could look, stand back and be like, well, you know, I have a job that I like and I have a family. I have a spouse that I care about, you know, like I shouldn't be uh, dependent on this, you know, like that that's actually more common than you'd think as well. But what we find is that there is something, and maybe if it's something young, it's, I don't know, it's, it's not obvious to me that just because we know something in our heads that our emotions actually follow through in the same way. Yeah. I can know this is bad, but yet I don't feel that it is. I can know this isn't going to end in any sort of, you know, satisfaction or anything positive. Yeah, I don't feel that. And then we, at the end of the day, often are more led by what we feel than just what we've chosen to believe or the way that we describe what we believe. So all that's a big conundrum. All that's a big knot that we're not really sure what to do. And the thing about addiction that makes it complicated is addiction is behavior that self-reinforces but has what's called an adaptive peak. An adaptive peak could be it's only good up until a point and then it kind of plummets after that. So for example, let's take a totally different context outside of porn. Social anxiety. You know, let's say I'm really socially anxious and so um, I go into, let's say, a, I don't know, a birthday party of a friend of mine, and I don't really know anybody there, but I want to support my friends. So I feel like I kind of have to go, but I'm I'm going to leave early. I don't want to stay there forever. I just going to stay there as long as they see that I'm there. Okay, good, fine. Um, I go into the room and I don't really make eye contact with anybody. I kind of stand in the corner. I'm a little quiet. Why do I do that? Well, um, I don't want to get rejected. I don't want to say something wrong. I don't want to embarrass myself or embarrass my friend. I don't know anybody. I don't really care to know anybody. Um, I'm not trying to make friends out here. I'm just trying to show up for a friend. Okay, so there might be all those kinds of things. The problem with some of those behaviors is that they seem to work on the front end. And what I mean by that is I stand in the corner, I don't say anything, and then I leave the party. And then I think, ah, that worked. I didn't get rejected. I didn't get humiliated. I didn't embarrass myself. I wasn't awkward because I didn't talk to anybody. But what that doesn't reveal, what that doesn't allow you to learn is that you probably could have talked to some folks and you probably would have been fine. And uh, if you I don't know, went up to somebody at the snack bar and you just said, hey, how are you doing? How do you know so-and-so? Like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, what do you do for work? Like you probably could have had some sort of small talk conversation. And even if you pressed through the awkwardness, it probably wouldn't have ended in some sort of catastrophe. You, you might surprise yourself that you have more social skills than you think. <laughs> like, and it would have been generally positive. But you don't learn that. You don't find that out because you stood in the corner and then you left. And the adaptive peak means that that strategy of standing in the corner and not talking to anybody works. And all it does, though, is it works of avoiding the thing that you don't want to happen. But the yeah. problem with those avoidance strategies is avoidance doesn't get you closer to things that matter to you. It just gets you away from things that you don't want to happen. And that's a really important thing to realize. If your whole life is centered around avoiding things, that are uncomfortable, that are painful, that are terrifying, that are shameful. You, you can't, it, it charts no path forward towards anything of substance or meaning in your life. I mean, one more analogy. I promise I won't do tons and tons of analogies, but no, keep them coming. Yeah. Well, let's say that, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to survive out in the wilderness and all you're concerned about is making sure you stay away from bears. It's like, okay, good job. Like you're not getting eaten, but there's a lot more to surviving in the wilderness than just avoiding bears. I mean, if you're running away from a bear, 
you're not thinking about like, oh, I should probably run towards a place with clean water. I should probably find a place that has shelter. Like, like, oh, okay, like, there, there might be something I could forage here. You're just thinking, okay, got to get away from the bear. Are there bears here? It's such a limited, narrow way to view a circumstance is how do I avoid the thing I want to avoid? And there is so much more relevant information that you're completely ignoring because of your fear, because of your avoidance. And I think that when it comes to something like addiction, pornography, it's an avoidance strategy. And I'm not talking about avoiding looking at porn. I'm talking about you looking at porn to avoid something in your own heart. You looking at porn to soothe something in your own heart. And I don't know what that is. Maybe for you it's loneliness. Maybe it's uh, it's some sort of trauma. Maybe it's maybe you wouldn't put the title trauma on it. Maybe it's just like you've had hard life experiences like anyone else. But for you, this thing really seems to kind of uh, boost your valence up in a positive place. Valence is your emotional state, right? It, it, it takes me from feeling negative into feeling positive. Okay, easy, fast, fine. That's great. But if you're just trying to avoid the negative, that doesn't actually bring you to anything positive. And so when I talk to people who are trapped in addiction, whether that's alcohol, whether that's pornography, um, video games, whatever in their life feels like they can't get a handle of, we talk about what is the adaptive peak and what are you not experiencing because of your centered focus on avoiding that emotional pain. And yeah. that's a conversation no, very few people I've talked to have had. No one even realizes that's underneath. I'm like, oh, well, shoot, I don't know. Um, well, okay. And then we also then talk about the reciprocal nature of addiction because something else that makes maybe uh, pornography or alcohol different than social anxiety is that the more that you use the substance, the more the substance starts to shift how your brain works. And then it actually starts to inhibit your agency to make cogent, aware, fully autonomous decisions. Someone that's, um, let's say, let's, let's kind of take a more extreme example. Someone who's addicted to like fentanyl, meth, or heroin. After a certain amount of usage, it's not obvious that the withdrawal symptoms are, are something that you can resist with, with much, um, well, with much success. Let's say that there is a degree. I'm not saying that like it completely takes over you that you're possessed by the substance. In every case, I'm not. I don't think it's deterministic like that. But let's say that maybe it it, it impedes you 20, 30, 40 percent um, on your willpower that you normally would have had if it were any other negative habit. Because there's a chemical dependence, because there's uh, well-defined neural pathways. In other words, it reprograms your instincts, your intuitions, your reflexes. And so you're working you know, to inhibit a behavior that your biology has kind of been programmed to run after. And that's the really just the knot of addiction that people have a hard time untangling that I think the mental health field has a hard time untangling. That's not just individuals. I think we as a society don't really know what to do with addiction in most cases. And so you, you really are kind of in a pickle. It's like, I, the more I use this, the less choice of I have access to, the less agency I have access to. And it's actually your agency and your choice that is necessary to start to untangle what's begun to happen. And, um, it's both. It's realizing this this thing that I'm using to suit the pain, not working. 
Um, there's a whole range of existence that actually, you know, blocks my vision towards. And the more I use this, it's not just the harder it gets. It's like the less of me is there. And that becomes increasingly a larger problem the more you use a substance. For someone who is, you know, so deep in specifically a pornography struggle, you know, it's something they've used compulsively from the time they were a teenager for years and years of their life. They may not even realize how how much it's, you know, changed their brain or changed, you know, taken away that freedom of choice. So for someone who's in that position, maybe with it, they're maybe not even aware how much control it has over them. How do they go about figuring out what they're avoiding if they're maybe not even aware that they're using it as a coping mechanism to avoid something? How does someone begin that process? That's a good question. To be totally honest with you, I think it's different for different people. Um, here's one method I use to kind of get to the root of that. Um, we're, let's say perhaps I'm working with someone and they're really set on wanting to stop viewing pornography and it really becomes a tense and emotionally distressing, you know, thing, especially maybe after a few days, let's say, and they're not really sure that they have the willpower to kind of press in. And this is really rooted to some sort of trauma or something. We're just trying to maybe like uh, resist the endorphins, the the hormones are being reprogrammed, you know, however you want to think about it. Um, well, uh, what emotions come up in the distress? Well, I feel frustrated and fatigued and agitated. Okay, good. What's underneath? Like what, what are the emotions that really start to come to the surface in the tension, in the fatigue? And that will be different for everyone. I mean, broadly, it'll be something like sadness, shame, or fear. Um, fear that I'm never really going to be happy without this, that, that my life really does have just this dull gray quality to it that if I really were to give this up, I don't know if I'll ever really experience that ecstatic not just eroticism again, but just feeling okay, feeling whole again. I'm like, ah, okay. When in your life did you stop feeling whole? Like, let's go back as early as you can remember. This feeling in your chest, this racing energy through your hands and arms and feet and body, the thing that is driving you to soothe. When did you first need to soothe? Like, well, when did I start watching porn? No, no, no. Like, Maybe it was earlier. When's the last time you felt this racing through your legs? And uh, I don't know. I, I was in softball or baseball like when my dad was the coach and he was yelling at me. Ah, if I didn't, if I didn't, you know, perform well in sports, I knew that he'd be disappointed. That, but that's not connected to porn. Why would why would I look at porn because my dad yelled at me in baseball? And it's like it's not it's not always this like super clear connection point it's not like the porn has to do with your dad in some uh, you know maybe erotic sense it's it's that no the pain of i'm not good enough the pain of if i don't perform i am of lower value i'm worthless the pain of uh no matter how hard i try i just can't that that might be the thing that pornography actually starts to attend to because you can find a fictional world where you see the body language and see the facial expressions moving back to you that you are competent, that you are worthwhile, that you're doing a good job. And maybe it doesn't really have much to do with the sex. It actually has more to do with that feeling. 
what are the feelings that arise in the tension? And then float that back a little bit into the, the recent or not so recent past. Have you found that there's moments when you felt similarly? Perhaps that has something to do with it. Not saying maybe it's 100%. Maybe that's not 100% of the problem. Maybe it's 20%. But what if your uh, struggle was 20% lighter? So may as well just go to therapy and process some of the stuff with your dad in baseball. You might find that it doesn't solve the whole problem, but hey, even if it shaves 10, 20%, you know, off of the stress, it might be worth it. I think, I mean, for so many people, I think knowing where to start is the difficult piece of this for them. So I think being able to kind of hear that broken down is helpful and also understanding, you know, for people who maybe are afraid to go to therapy or utilize therapy as a resource, kind of getting a sense of what therapy can help you figure out and then and then what you can do once you have that information. So for someone maybe who has identified, you know, I think this is the root cause of what I'm avoiding. What are some things that they would maybe be able to work on with a therapist or on their own if they don't have access to therapy or can't afford it that could help them kind of replace this um, negative coping mechanism with something, or I should say unhealthy coping mechanism with something that could be healthier. You know, getting to the root, that's as far, I mean, people have different solutions here and, and recommend different things. The thing I recommend is get to the root of the thing and then let's heal it. You know, we don't necessarily have to replace with something better to cope with. Um, I, I don't know, if you heal the wound, then there's nothing that has to be coped with. Let's get to the root and then heal it. And then if we can heal it, then you're not having to manage this thing in a positive way instead of in a negative way. You can just feel relieved. And that feels kind of like pie in the sky, kind of good, too good to be true. But that, that is possible. At least that's what I hold. That's what I believe. And I know that not everyone maybe listening would agree with that. Um, but it, I, I think we certainly have clinical evidence to show that there's lots of different psychological modalities that do produce a um, profound amount of healing. And the common experience with people who have experienced things like that is that it's not just then, okay, I need to replace this bad habit with a better way to soothe the same pain. It's, oh, I just don't feel like I need to overeat anymore. Like, oh, I just feel like I can go to the gym and I can wake up and, I don't know, start hanging out on the treadmill. And it's not charged with the same amount of resistance as it used to be. I don't want to smoke anymore. Like, that's, isn't that the dream that just emotionally things just, there's a relief and I think that relief comes not from being convinced it's bad enough, not from shaming ourselves enough. Like, I think that relief is when the emotional wound is released. And, you know, two modalities that I've had personal experience knowing that that does happen, not just for myself, but for others, are internal family systems and EMDR. Two different modalities that approach trauma healing in two, two different ways. So that might, you know, those styles might work better or worse for different people. And there's certainly no guarantees around any of that. Like everyone's in a different stage in their process. But, um, well, I guess I could I could go into a few different paths there. I could explain some of those or I could uh, detail something else. But what questions do you have in that? Yeah, well, I think actually, you know, for someone listening, again, I think, you know, because of shame being an element of this for so many people, I do think there is a barrier of of wanting to get that help. So I think if you don't mind explaining um, internal family systems and EMDR therapy, what those what those are like, what those could do to benefit people, um, I think our audience would benefit from hearing that. Yeah. So if therapy isn't the right fit, we can start we can certainly start this in a journal exercise. You can start this in conversations with a mentor, someone in um I don't know your life that you trust, someone in your faith community, someone 
you know, who's in your life that you feel like you can confide in. Uh, some of those steps, like I kind of talked about would be getting underneath the tension and the fatigue to actually start to find out, is there any sadness, shame, or fear under here? And can I take that back to earlier in my life and make some connections with that? And here's what maybe EMDR and IFS have in common. And, and by the way, there's lots of other modalities that are positive. I'm just talking about the two that I know that I've had training in because I feel like I can speak about them more. There's things that are, you know, I have colleagues that practice that, that seem really great on the outside. Like AEDP is one of them. Um, uh, sensory motor psychotherapy, somatic experiencing. There's lots. There's lots of different styles of therapy. But the ones I can speak to, IFS and EMDR, what they do is they essentially go into witnessing the emotional burden that was taken on during whatever happened in your past. And it's important to point out, sometimes these burdens really impact us, even though it's not something we would particularly maybe title a trauma. It's not like you had to have a near-death experience or you had to be molested or something in order for this to be relevant to you. I think that all of us in one way or another experience things that are overwhelming. And that's the point. When you're overwhelmed, you manage the circumstance as best as you know how. Yeah. And when you're overwhelmed, you end up getting hurt. You end up making things worse. And then you start concluding this was my fault. And you start, I don't know, it, when you're a kid, it's like, you don't know. You don't know how complex stuff is and how the world's you know, put together. And so you're just doing your best. And sometimes even your best doesn't adequately maneuver the circumstance well, or sometimes by no fault of your own, other people's actions impact you. And uh, well, okay, there, there's a lot there. But I'll say that what you do is you realize, not realize, I'm sorry, you, you attend to the emotional burden. And I say emotional there, because it's not obvious that there's anything therapeutic about just retelling a story. Um, it's not obvious to me that like, if you read a, 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 I don't know, a police report in a courtroom, there's anything healing about that. Like this happened and this happened and this happened. It's like, no, what were the thoughts, feelings, and sensations you experienced in the hard thing? So let's say it was that mom was just rather cold. She wasn't very physically affectionate. She had pretty high standards for you. You knew that she loved you, but she was pretty punitive and kind of withdrawn. And if you're being honest with yourself, that was kind of hard and you took it pretty hard. And so you really wanted to impress her and you really didn't feel like you were doing good enough. And you felt at the same time, a bit resentful and just kind of far off from her. And it's this weird combo of wanting more from her and kind of wanting her to get away from you. And you don't really know how to, I don't know, put your finger on all that, but that's, you don't feel like you have a good reason to feel that way. She didn't beat you or something, but, but Hey, maybe you feel that way. Um, so what was it like? You know, not just like, Oh, well, tell me the story of, her being an awful mom it's what was it like not being able to go to her with things that you were confused by you didn't know how to navigate and you didn't feel comfortable being able to bring that to her like i don't know having a crush at someone at school or having a project that you got a bad grade on like in, instead of feeling like oh i can go to her for comfort or insight or support it's like ah, she's probably gonna make a comment she's probably gonna i don't know make it worse in some way and that is overwhelming for a yeah. middle schooler, for a freshman or whatever, because you're a kid. You need people that hold pain with you. That's the whole point. It's like when you're a kid, you're not just out on the world on your own, totally self-sufficient. You need adults in your life who are more mature, that have a greater emotional capacity than you do to help hold the hard stuff with you and help you realize that 
you know, you didn't fail because you're just something uniquely terrible and pathetic and that something's wrong with you. Like you failed because you used the wrong strategy. Like let's, let's find a different strategy. Maybe, maybe you did need to update your strategy. It needed to be a bit more complex. You used something that was too simple. You stayed up all night playing video games. You went and took the test. And even though you studied, you got a bad grade because you didn't get enough sleep. Okay, let's update the strategy. You need more sleep next time. So that helps. Yeah. That helps like, oh, okay, this, I'm not bad at math. I just used the wrong strategy to prep for that test. That's not obvious to a kid. And so if you didn't have that, that is going to cascade into not just one or two hard things, but likely dozens or hundreds or thousands of moments that you should have been able to approach your mom or your dad, but you didn't because you didn't feel comfortable. And so that meant that you had to hold all those weird ambiguities on your own. And you, you just had to learn it all by trial and error. And in some ways that made you resilient. In some ways you had to rise to the occasion and that gave you a bit of grit. Good on you. But in some ways you felt alone. And, and if you're being honest with yourself, there's times that you felt pretty insufficient and pretty low. Okay. What was it like to have to go through that? What did you feel? What did you think about yourself? Um, what did you feel in your body? Not just like feel in an emotional sense, but what was it like? Oh, I couldn't sleep a lot. I just felt antsy. I felt, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe it you know, escalated into something like symptoms of ADD. And, you know, ADD has a strong genetic component, but it can also be brought on by trauma. We've been able to see that. Um, we've seen that environmental, you know, factors can impact something like that. And so when, when you really do attend to the experience of the emotional wound, and I would say you want to share that, not just, not just, uh, go through the storyline, but share the experience of the overwhelming thing with someone that you trust, with someone who loves you, with someone who cares about you. And that could be someone like a therapist who's really holding a safe space for you. I, like I said, that can be a mentor that can be. Uh, yourself in a journal. Not everyone believes that. That's something I hold is that you can actually share this with yourself, you know, via, via a journal. That's an IFS idea. And I think that for some people that's going to be, that's going to be possible is to, to write that down, to share that. Maybe that's sharing it with God, if you have a faith background. And then when it's genuinely shared and attended to, when you feel listened to, that's really important. The person didn't just jump in and start telling you all this advice. They didn't jump in and shut you down. They didn't start taking the conversation off into their own past and start talking about their own stuff. They really are with you. They're attuned to you. Oh, there is a shift. Um, many people call it a corrective experience. And that is when the truth naturally emerges in the context of that relational love that you're experiencing with someone else or that safe connection, if love is too dramatic of a word, um, with someone else. And when I say naturally emerge, like there's this idea, and this is an EMDR, they call it dual awareness, which is there's the young part of you that really experienced and remembers the event in that kind of young type of way that still kind of believes that they're just pathetic or they're worthless, or they it was their fault. But then there's the grown-up version of you that intellectually gets it, that intellectually gets that, okay, that wasn't me. And that wasn't my fault. And I was a kid. Like, it wasn't fair that I was even put in that position in the first place. And I didn't know how to ask, you know, for what I needed. You know, so there's like these two forms of awareness. There's like the kid awareness and the adult awareness. And when you feel genuinely heard, that experience of the hard things genuinely attended to, 
there's this corrective experience where the adult and the child kind of collide. Um, in IFS language, it's the self. They call that adult awareness, the self. The self and the exile kind of collide. Um, if we were to use other adjectives for that, it's it's like the head and the heart come into the same place. And then there's this aha moment. And not just an aha moment of something purely intellectual. It's like the emotions actually reprogram. You're like, oh, that, uh, that makes sense. So for example, like this all might feel a bit abstract and, you know, esoteric, but let's say that I went to my uh, brother and let's say I lost my temper. I have, I have two little kids. I have a, I have a two-year-old daughter. I have a one-year-old son. Let's say I lost my temper at my daughter and I kind of raised my voice at her and I felt really terrible about that. And I'm just like, man, I'm a really crappy dad. Like, you know, a good dad wouldn't have raised his voice at his kid. And I'm probably just doing the same thing my dad did. And let's say I'm really kind of spiraling into a lot of shame and embarrassment about that. And let's say I go to my brother. And let's say my brother has a bit of wisdom. Let's say he says, Matthias, if it were me coming to you and uh, I told you that I yelled at my kid, um, would you be saying all those things to me right now? Would you be calling me a terrible parent? And what kind of parent would, would yell at their kid? Like you're just repeating dad's mistakes. Would you, would you give me that lecture? I would be like, well, no, I wouldn't say that to you. You'd be like, well, why are you saying it to yourself? And then something would dawn on me. Oh, that's not reasonable. And that's an example of that collision of, oh, wait, like that doesn't make sense. And that's maybe the version of the adult self or the self kind of waking up and being like, hold on, this isn't, this isn't a sufficient, this isn't a sufficient way to, to hold this experience or to think about this. And then the, the, the child self, perhaps that part that feels shameful or overwhelmed or is really down on themselves, that's, that's perhaps representative of a younger way to look at it. It's like all those things come into the same space. And they came into the same space because I was genuinely heard and listened to. And then my brother's wise question facilitated me to kind of bring both those things into the same you know, sphere. And then what happens, and I'm like, oh, hey, you know, I should probably just relax a bit and and go easier on myself. And then I'm probably able to give myself the advice that I need. Like, I should probably check and see if I was just a bit stressed out. Like, maybe maybe it's not that I am rageful towards my kids. Maybe I just, they caught me at a bad moment. Okay, what was what was going on in that moment? Well, I was working too much and I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. Okay, I should probably like focus on my sleep more. I should probably, you know, really da-da-da-da-da. So what, what we find most of the time is that people kind of know how to fix their own problems. Is that the part of them that knows how to fix the problem and the emotions don't know how to get to each other. That happens through that warm attendance, that that genuine connection to the thoughts, feelings, and sensations of the part of you that holds the emotional burden. And that can feel a bit abstract. And that's why going maybe to a therapist who knows how to use something like IFS or EMDR is going to be a really great option if you feel like facilitating on your own still kind of feels a bit, I don't know, like you're wandering around not really knowing where you're going or you don't really know what to do with that i mean that we can lean into other people that's that's part of the experience of being human in emdr they do a very similar version of that where they they ask you simply just to reflect on some of those really deep dark experiences again paying attention to thoughts feelings and sensations but they do something called bilateral stimulation which if you've ever seen it it's just the therapist wiggling their fingers back and forth and someone following their fingers with their eyeballs kind of moving their eyes back and forth 
imagine kind of like hypnotism. It's not hypnotism, but sort of like that. And what that does is it just, it taxes the part of your brain called your working memory that, that might be, I don't know, prone to getting triggered, prone to uh, getting distracted. And it stimulates the brain in such a way, and this isn't very well understood, but we've seen it in, in studies is it stimulates the brain in such a way that allows you to consolidate memory. And that means is it allows you to put a memory that maybe is like out of place that we really don't know what to do with. And we're able to kind of put it back in its place. We're able to take a memory that's really distressing. It's kind of overwhelming. And instead of looking at it, not really knowing what to do, there's an insight that emerges. That's like, Oh, okay. I know where to file this away. I know what this means. I know what to make of this. Okay. I can put it to rest and I don't have to keep replaying it in my head or in my nightmares or in my emotions over and over and over again. And so again, that naturally emerges within the context of that safe relationship with the therapist and that deep attendance to the emotional content of the root issue. I think sometimes when, you know, outfight the new drug, we're solely focused on raising awareness on the harmful effects of pornography, using science facts and personal accounts. And I think sometimes our lens can get so narrow and maybe even for someone who's struggling, you know, with a compulsive pornography behavior, the lens can become so narrow. And I think being able to dive into all of this and broaden the lens to say, you know, what's really going on here um, is actually a really helpful and needed part of this conversation. So I appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us and providing that insight. Oh, I'm so grateful. Yeah, I feel that way too. I my My hope is that people maybe just even this kind of 10,000 foot up sketch of what that process looks like just gives people enough to, I don't know, to spark some curiosity and to know that it might, I just want to say this as an asterisk, it might take a couple tries. Not every therapist knows that pathway. It might sound a little strange, but it's like, you might have to try two or three therapists in order to find someone that knows how to go there. And that, it's not obvious that just because you get a master's in counseling somewhere that you know how to go there and you know how to facilitate people through that process. And so I would look for people who have training and not just that they attended a workshop somewhere, but they've had someone supervising their use of those skills and those tools, meaning that somewhere there's some expert that's like watched a video of them doing those techniques and then put their stamp of approvals like, yeah, you're doing it right. That's just like, that's what you'd hope for your electrician. That's what you'd hope for your plumber. You want that for your therapist too. So that's, that's always what I tell people. I'm like, look for someone who's had training, look for someone who isn't just have a master's degree, but has done specialized supervised training in some of these things. And there's a hope there, even if it means you have to try a couple different people that um, they have the insight and they have the, they know the path to take you down so that this can actually end in real healing for you. Um, there's this story, uh, the myth of Pandora's box, where the myth goes that all the gods uh, collected gifts and gave it to Pandora, the first woman. This is the Greek myth. And, uh, and presented you know, Pandora with this box and Pandora opened the box to see the gifts the gods had given her and all the maladies and tragedies of mankind became flooding out of this box. And then the myth does something interesting. It says she panicked when she opened the box and everything came flooding out. And so she closed the box, but all the maladies had already escaped. She had trapped one thing in the box that couldn't get out in time. And that was hope. And it's such a complex story. But what I take that to mean, perhaps symbolically or psychologically, is 
there's going to be moments when we open up the box and all the maladies and terrors of mankind come out. There's going to be times when you go into therapy and you're going to start exploring your childhood and all the deep, dark stuff is going to come out. And if you cut the process short, you might run into a same, well, the same problem is that all the maladies get out, but you don't get access to your hope. And so there's a courage in opening the box and letting it stay open so that everything hard can come out and hope can come out. And maybe in that, all the hard things can be addressed in the way they need to be addressed. Um, there's hope after all. So I hope that people would take this idea and maybe, okay, maybe I'll try trauma counseling. Maybe I need a different counselor because what Matthias is talking about isn't anything I've been experiencing in my counseling. Good and fine. Um, try it and stick with it. And when then when all the maladies of all the gods come pouring out, stay, keep the box open, have some courage there. And you might find that the woundedness that's animating your attachment to this substance, this new drug, starts to loosen its grip. And you find that you have far more agency, far more capability to make decisions in lines with your values than you thought was possible. I think that's such a, a perfect way to remind people that real healing is actually possible, that there is a lot of hope in this space. I think sometimes, again, the lens is too narrow and we just forget. But we hear from people all the time, you work with people all the time who do heal these wounds, um, who no longer need to cope in these ways that are harming them um, in other ways. So I appreciate you sharing that. And I, I hope anyone who is listening can have that hope and can find that hope. And I do want to go back to something you talked about um, a little bit ago, which was opening up to a safe person. You know, we know that trauma and coping mechanisms like addiction can impact and affect how we connect with others. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, why that is, how it can be affected in those ways and how to maybe overcome if you're feeling you have you don't feel like you have a safe person you can approach or you don't have access to therapy how to how to um make a, a shift there so that you can open up to someone so that you can connect with someone when you've when you've been isolated or had a loss of connection i think there's two things that occur to me one is that it's um it's reasonable to be cautious you know it's it's not obvious that you just need to open up you really do need to open up to a safe person like or I should say it's not obvious that it would help to open up to just someone random. Um, you want to open up to someone who genuinely cares and has some wisdom. And so I would say that you do have a deep intuition around those things. They're, what's funny, when you look at the psychological data on what makes therapy most successful, they've, they've tracked it of like, okay, what's more successful? Like cognitive-based therapies where you talk a lot and try to get more rational. Is it like emotion-based therapies? Is it behavior-based? Is it, you know, this style, EMDR, IFS? Like what's the best style of therapy? And what they found is the thing that predicts a positive experience in therapy more than anything else is you have a warm and genuine connection with the therapist that you just trust them. It's called uh, therapeutic alliance is the official title for it. You just feel like, okay, I feel okay with you. And especially when you have sexual trauma, that barometer, that compass can be skewed. And so going into circumstances that are more structured than less is going to be something wise. And what I mean by that is, you know, I mean, there's people listening to this perhaps all over the world, but I know that within the States, there's 
there's uh there's often access to something like free counseling or like low income counseling or you know counseling in the in the ballpark of like 20 30 bucks you know a session um in most cities and and there's also organizations that provide scholarships for people who can't avoid therapy that if you're part of their program they'll pay for your therapy and so it might it might be wise to do some research there and try to find you know even if it's zoom perhaps you live in a city that's really not close to like a a large kind of center full of therapists. And so jumping on Zoom might be something you might think about considering. And I would look for a place where there's supervision, meaning like an agency or a practice where there's lots of kind of people and <clears throat> instead of just like a private practice circumstance, if you're in the state of like, oh, I really don't know if I can trust them. I don't know. I've I've been in codependent situations before. I'm worried that I'm going to get taken advantage of. I'm worried that I don't, I don't have a good barometer or a good compass on <clears throat> if they're trustworthy or not. Like that's totally reasonable. Trust that gut intuition. Uh, maybe try a meeting with a counselor who's <clears throat> um, being supervised and someone's looking over their shoulder and looking at their notes so that if you really do have some sort of like, I don't know, malicious psychopath, uh, someone will notice. <laughs> it's a weird practical piece of advice, but you know, the malicious psychopaths don't like to hang out in the really structured agency settings. Well, I mean, I, I can't say that officially. Maybe there are, but uh, it, they usually try to hang out where no one can be looking over their shoulder and and seeing what they're up to. And so, if you, if you genuinely are nervous of like, oh, I don't know how to, I don't know how to find someone. Uh, there's safety in numbers, so that, that's like a little piece there. Um, yeah. If therapy just genuinely isn't an option for you, I would say maybe the same thing regarding mentorship. Uh, go to like an organized community, something like um, like a group meeting, like a. I know that depending on your background or depending on what you're struggling is something like a 12 step program, something like a sexual, you know, an essay, a sexual economists, those are free. If you can go to places where there's numbers or there's people, there's a system around, you know, people, you're going to have a higher likelihood just statistically of, you know, finding someone um, that might be able to create a positive experience with you. And um, yeah, does that, does that attend to that question? Yeah, I think so. And I think a good reminder for anyone listening who's maybe said, well, I tried therapy and it didn't work, right? You know, maybe just try again, right? Sometimes I think it, it can be intimidating. It does take a lot of courage to be willing to open up to a stranger about these these things and to know it's okay to, to do it again with someone else if you don't feel like there's a good safe fit. Yeah, that's a really great point. I want to comment on that. Just it's okay to not open up the whole life story to someone on the first couple of meetings. People are like, oh, I don't want to go to a bunch of therapists and try a bunch of people because I don't want to have to go into my whole life story like five times. And I'm like, well, who does? That sounds awful. Um, go and just, you know, essentially what I would do is go and do some small talk with a therapist right up front. You want to share stuff progressively. You don't want to go into your whole life story just because they're a therapist. You, you, you need to kind of feel them out a bit. And see if they're trustworthy. See if they're insightful. I'll bring up something kind of small first, if you, if that feels more comfortable. Like I don't know, I'm I'm frustrated because um, the guy who fixed my car didn't do a good job, and and he won't refund me, and I don't know what to do. Like pick something low, you know, low intensity. See if they're good at that first, and then and then kind of move into deeper stuff. And you might find that's generally less fatiguing. So if you're going to try three different therapists, you're just talking about how you're angry at the guy who, you know, messed up the oil on your car. You're not talking about your mom, you know, three times. That's actually a pretty, I don't know, that's not self-evident, but that that's a good piece of advice. And then same thing with these groups. You know, you don't have to share your whole life story the first time you go to a group. Uh, sit, listen, watch. When someone else is vulnerable, what do the other people do? Do they bark advice at them? Do they seem generally compassionate and kind? Do they kind of leave them hanging and then 
no one sticks around and talks after they just all just kind of wander off and to their cars and everyone seems kind of isolated. Like, you know, you kind of got to stick up for yourself and investigate, you know, for your own health. And, uh, it's, that's okay. If you've been to one therapist, you didn't experience therapy. Generally, you experienced therapy with that one guy or that one woman. And so it's, it, it would be strange if you never hired a plumber because one plumber messed up your kitchen. And in the same sense, you don't want to, you know, abandon therapy because one therapy, one, one therapist, you know, didn't have insight or said something bogus. So, well, it's been such an honor um, to speak with you again. Thank you for joining us again on the podcast, Matthias, or any of our listeners who want to learn more about you or, or your resources. Can you tell us where they can go? Yeah. Uh, Matthias J. Barker. That's on Instagram, TikTok, just about everywhere. And then if you go to MatthiasJBarker.com, I have all sorts of different workshops that kind of go through some of these topics. So if you want to kind of learn more about what it looks like to heal from trauma, you want some maybe workbooks and places to start. Um, I have trauma workshops. One of them is called a free mind. That's probably the place I would tell you to start. So if, I don't know, you want a free mind, if you want to move towards freedom, that's a trauma focused route uh, to get there. So I would push people there. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. We can't wait for our listeners to hear what you had to say. Thank you so much for having me. It was a joy. Hey, listeners, join us during our annual No Porn November campaign as we give visibility to the science and research that demonstrates porn's harms and inspire our world to be porn free. During the month of November, we're challenging our fighters to start a conversation with others about the harms of porn. Take the month to educate yourself about the harmful effects of pornography and sexual exploitation and change the conversation by having healthy, productive conversations. To learn more about our No Porn November campaign and to get involved, visit ftnd.org forward slash NPN. That's ftnd.org forward slash NPN. Because of desensitization, many porn consumers find themselves consuming more porn, consuming more often, or consuming more extreme forms of pornography. In fact, according to a 2016 study, researchers found that 46.9% of respondents reported that over time, they began watching pornography that had previously disinterested or even disgusted them. Get more fast facts about the impacts of pornography and exploitation at ftnd.org forward slash fast facts. That's ftnd.org forward slash fast facts. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Consider Before Consuming. Consider Before Consuming is brought to you by Fight the New Drug. Fight the New Drug is a non-religious and a non-legislative organization that exists to provide individuals the opportunity to make an informed decision regarding pornography by raising awareness on its harmful effects using only science, facts, and personal accounts. If you'd like to learn more about today's guest and the conversation we had, you can check out the links included with this episode. If you find this podcast helpful, consider subscribing and leaving a review. Consider Before Consuming is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to support Consider Before Consuming, you can make a one-time or recurring donation of any amount at ftnd.org forward slash support. That's ftnd.org forward slash support. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to increase your self-awareness, look both ways, check your blind spots, and consider before consuming.